Hi there. You are listening to the JMCC Scientist in the Spotlight podcast. My name is Kate Weeks. I'm from the University of Melbourne, and I'm joined today by Dr. Andrew Gibb, who is an instructor in the Cardiovascular Research Centre within the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Kate. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you for joining me today. Of course. So uh, you're the lead author on a paper that has been published in the JMCC and which was selected by the editors as their, their top article for November. But before we talk about your paper, let's talk about you. So how did you get into research? So I originally um, had gone to school for exercise physiology, uh, thinking that I was going to get into physical therapy or cardiovascular pulmonary rehab, something in that realm. Um, but throughout my time uh, working in those types of settings, I realized that I wanted to have more of a uh, impact on the front end or on the later things and, and getting more involved in uh, the research side of science. Um, and so uh, after getting my exercise physiology master's degree at the University of Louisville, um, I enrolled in the uh, physiology PhD program uh, at the University of Louisville. Um, and then from there, kind of uh, joined um, Dr. Brad Hill's lab, who uh, does a lot of cardiovascular metabolism research um, and really kind of started um, trying to integrate my interest in exercise and the heart uh, into his research um, and developed a PhD program or a PhD uh, thesis off of that. So I see from some of your uh, papers from that time that you did a lot of exercise studies in animals. My understanding is that you were really a key driver of that new research area in in the Hill Lab. Was that difficult as a PhD student trying to ask new research questions in a lab that maybe didn't do so much exercise physiology? Uh, it was a little bit difficult, but it was also kind of exciting more than anything. Um, my uh, mentors all gave me, you know, unconditional support and uh, everything financial and, and uh, you know, knowledge-based um, support to help get these studies going. But yeah, it was really exciting to kind of feel like I was the one involved in, in starting everything up um, versus kind of, you know, coming in and, and maybe finishing somebody else's project or kind of piggybacking off of something. Um, it was really exciting, and I think it really helped um, in my development and growth as a scientist to to really start from the ground up and and see something through from start to finish like this. Yeah, what a fantastic experience. Um, so how did you get from there to Temple University? Um, so about in the last year or so of my PhD, um, I had started a collaborative project um, that Dr. Hill and uh, Dr. John Elrod had started. Um, looking at fibroblast metabolism um, and how that uh, was changing in the context of fibroblast to myofibroblast differentiation. Um, and kind of during some of those, um, you know, initial uh, meetings and, and collaborative talks, um, John invited me out for a uh, uh, interview for a postdoctoral position in his lab. And um, I really liked the atmosphere here and, and the style and size of his lab and the research that was going on. Um, and so that's kind of what led to my uh, joining his lab. Yeah, great. Um, and so your your current research really focuses on, I guess, metabolic programming of the heart and how changes in energy metabolism 
influence the activation state of fibroblasts. Why fibroblasts? Why so much focus on that particular cell type? Um, so my PhD work really focused on physiological remodeling of the heart, uh, mostly in response to exercise. And I wanted to really expand my expertise and start to investigate the role of metabolism in more maladaptive and pathological remodeling of the heart. Um, and so, you know, like I said, with the collaborative work that I was doing with uh, Dr. Elrod, um, we had found that fibrotic signaling uh, results in decreased mitochondrial calcium uptake um, through the mitochondrial calcium uniporter, and this had a significant effect on metabolism. So this was a really nice, um, you know, project and, and an idea that I could come in and kind of expand upon um, for my first project within uh, Dr. Elrod's lab during my postdoc um, tenure. And so within that project, we had found that increasing alpha-ketoglutarate bioavailability due to this decrease in calcium uptake um, was required for the activation of alpha-ketoglutarate-dependent lysine demethylases uh, to enhance chromatin accessibility in loci that are specific for myofibroblast gene programs. And so while we knew that, we didn't really know where this alpha-ketoglutarate was coming from or how it was being synthesized. And so that's what led to uh, the paper here that um, was selected as that editor's choice. Fantastic. Uh, so for those of you listening, you can download Andrew's paper from the JMCC website. It's open access, so you shouldn't have any problems uh, accessing that paper. Um, Andrew, can you walk us through the, the key findings from your paper? Certainly. So, um, you know, first we, we just wanted to do a very easy, basic test of trying to understand which um, carbon sources were contributing to alpha-ketoglutarate synthesis. Um, just basally or under TGF-beta-stimulated conditions. Um, so using stable isotope tracing um, metabolomics, uh, we looked at glucose and glutamine, as these seem to be the most likely uh, carbon source um, from the literature and from some of our other data that we had. And it was interesting, we found that um, very little glucose-derived uh, carbons end up in the TCA cycle, and this all seemed to be really... Um, coming from glutamine in not, not only TGF-beta-stimulated conditions, but also just naive uh, conditions. And so next we really asked, um, you know, is the utilization of glutamine uh, by the fibroblast, is that required um, for these cells to differentiate and to activate these gene programs? And so using both um, genetic deletion st uh, strategies, as well as uh, pharmacological inhibitor studies, um, we found that the loss of these cells' ability to utilize glutamine uh, was sufficient to uh, prevent the de novo expression of alpha smooth muscle actin, uh, which is a de novo characteristic uh, feature of a myofibroblast, um, as well as their ability to contract collagen gel matrices or to uh, increase the um, their bioenergetic capacities. Um, and then from that, um, because we had previously shown that um, alpha-ketoglutarate was important for these lysine demethylase events to activate the gene program. Uh, we, again, looked at methylation states of, of various histone marks um, with or without inhibition of uh, glutamine utilization and found that if we inhibit uh, the cell's ability to utilize glutamine, this prevented um, histone demethylation in the context of TGF-beta stimulation. Really exciting study uh, and really important findings. You mentioned that you did some work using a pharmacological inhibitor, CB839. Can you tell us a bit more about that compound? What does it do? And is it a viable therapeutic? 
Yes. So uh, CBA39 is uh, uh, inhibitor of glut glutaminase. So this is the uh, first and committed step of glutaminolysis, um, converting glutamine to glutamate, uh, which would eventually end up as our um, alpha-ketoglutarate that I was hinting at there. Um, what's really exciting about this CBA39 compound is it's, it's very specific uh, for glutaminase um, with very few off-target effects. Um, and it's also currently being used in uh, phase two cancer clinical trials um, to look at uh, reducing proliferation and tumor growth um, in patients. And so, you know, it's really exciting that this uh, compound um, could potentially uh, be repurposed for more uh, therapeutic strategies to maybe potentially target uh, fibrosis and not only cardiovascular disease, um, but you know, any disease setting or any uh, tissue for that matter. And can you tell us a bit more about what you did with that compound in uh, human fibroblasts? I think in your circulation yes. paper, you did some really, really cool experiments. Certainly. So um, in in this paper, we had, uh, we were fortunate to obtain cardiac fibroblasts from uh, heart failure explants. Um, and in treating these with TGF-beta, these cells were able to uh, differentiate into a more myofibroblast phenotype, uh, activating the fibro, fibroblast gene program. Um, but when we had our CBA39 inhibitor on board, uh, we prevented this myofibroblast phenotype. So this really kind of shows um, direct, direct clinical um, translation, hopefully for this uh, use of this compound. Um, and then with the uh, circulation paper that you uh, hinted at there, um, we also use that strategy to see that, well, if we differentiated these fibroblasts um, and then intervened by adding this inhibitor on board, could we reverse the myofibroblast phenotype? Um, and we were able to show that in the cardiac fibroblast from the uh, human heart failure explants. Um, and then more importantly, in a mouse model within that paper, um, using a genetic model to uh, delete the GLS-1 protein, only after the fibroblast had become myofibroblast uh, using a periostin inducible Cre line, um, we were able to show that we could reverse fibrosis and uh, further prevent functional decline in a mouse model of uh, heart failure. Uh, Andrew, it's really amazing work. And I'll just mention here that uh, Andrew was awarded the Richard J. Bing Award for Young Investigators for his work uh, at, at the ISHR World Congress in Berlin earlier this year, which is a fantastic achievement. So congratulations, Andrew. It's, uh, it's really exciting to hear about your research, and I really look forward to reading about the next step. What is the next step? What are you currently working on? Um, so I think the next step in this context of, you know, fibroblasts and metabolism and heart failure and metabolism um, is especially with the fibroblasts that there's been several papers that have revealed that there is up to potentially 13 subpopulations of fibroblasts in the heart. Mm -hmm. um, and that some are likely more proliferative. Some may be more secretory, more contractile or rigid in nature. Um, yet we don't really understand if these same canonical and non-canonical pathways um, are invoked in all of these cell populations. And so whether using the same uh, interventional strategies, if this will target, you know, all populations, more importantly, the, the correct or more or most significant disease causing population, I think is, is uh, you know, provides numerous opportunities for research advancements there. Um, then I think there's also a growing interest um, that I have specifically on cell to cell communication. 
um, not only between, you know, say neighboring fibroblasts, but but fibroblasts and endothelial cells or endothelial cells and cardiomyocytes or just between other cells. Um, and so some of my most recent studies have started to be unravel some of this um, crosstalk concept uh, in the heart and trying to understand how that impacts heart failure progression. Okay, so just to wrap up, uh, I'd actually like to ask you a couple of questions about your experiences as a parent, because I know you have two young kids um, and that life as a scientist when you have young kids can be really challenging and intense. So I guess the first thing I wanted to ask is, do you think your approach to work has changed since becoming a parent? I think the approach to work has definitely changed. I think it has to. Um, and I think anybody that has gone through that would agree with me. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I think you just find ways to work smarter, you know, while working harder. Um, I think that's the biggest change that I've made. So, you know, while I'm at work, it's work and that yeah. way I can go home and then I can be with my family. So I think that's kind of the the biggest change that I've made. Um, and then, you know, I guess working a little later at night every now and then as well, because once they're in bed, then yes. you have a little more freedom <laughs> to catch up on some things. So, Do you have any advice for uh, academic researchers who are hoping to have kids? Is there anything people um, can do to prepare for the chaos that is <laughs> juggling work uh, with, a, with a family? I think what's the saying that you can never prepare for kids, but um, I think just kind of realizing that you know, your work has to change. Um, I think, you know, as a PhD student, um, you know, I at least got very, very focused on just, um, you know, this, like I had to get just this done. But when you have kids and you have a family, there's, you know, you kind of have to find that work-life balance and that's different for everybody. Um, but I think if you're able to, like I said, work smarter um, and when you're working smarter, if you just work harder during that time, um, I think that's, probably the best advice that I would give. And also when you're, you know, with your family, make sure that you're with your family. So. And do you have any advice for how PIs can support their staff so that their careers and their science can actually sort of progress um, during this period? Yeah, I think, you know, not only specific to, you know, trainees that have uh, children or families, but I think understanding that, you know, each trainee is very different. Mm -hmm. Um, I think some will, and, you know, this is something I've seen as well is that, you know, some respond well to tough love and some, you know, need a little more guidance and a little more understanding. Um, and just because, you know, a PI believes that the way that they were trained or the, the their beliefs are, are the only way that's not, you know, the realization. Um, but I think also that, you know, it's hard for those of us that make it to, academia, for instance, to, to understand that not every trainee wants to go that route. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think just being supportive of trainees and, and telling them that, you know, they can do whatever they want. There's lots of options, helping them to understand that. Um, and then reinforcing that, you know, obtaining a PhD isn't, it's about the journey really. And so developing your skills, both technical and, and, more so the critical thinking and problem solving yeah, skills, the process, you know, is yeah. really the more important aspect of uh, future success. Well, thank you so much. It's been really great to chat and really looking forward to hearing about what you get up to next. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.